Well, this morning we'll be starting a new series for the new year, starting off on the right foot, looking at new beginnings. I want to ask you a question this morning as we begin our message. How many here know what a mulligan is? Some of you know. Well, it's a term that's used in golfing. I don't golf, so I, I learned about this. But it means that you get a do-over. When a golfer makes a bad shot and he wants to redo it without adding any additional stroke to his score, he just calls a mulligan. And so he gets to take the shot again. It's really a great rule. It makes golf a better game, especially for those amateurs. Those of you who raised your hands, by the way, just expose yourselves as amateur golfers. But the idea of a mulligan is useful in life, too, I believe. Uh, there are times in life when we need a second chance. We need a new start. One of the basic tenets of the gospel is that we get a second chance. There's no question that we need one. And with the new year, 2010, as we look at a year before us, we don't know what that year will bring. But a lot of people use the new year as a way to start fresh. They look at it as a clean slate. Well, I'd like us to look the next couple of weeks into the life of the Apostle Paul. And we want to gain some insights into our subject, New Beginnings, from his writings to the Church of Philippi out of the book of Philippians. See, Paul is a man who penned a majority of the New Testament, but he was not always a spiritual, godly man, as you may think. Paul had a seedy background. He was religious, but his religion led him to do some horrible things. And so he wrote this letter to the church of Philippi, and he gave a glorious testimony of how God changed his life. I want to read for us this morning out of the book of Philippians, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, as we begin our new series, starting off on the right foot. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained, or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. 
Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. If there's one person that needed a do-over, it was the Apostle Paul. This morning, I just want to look at a couple things about the Apostle Paul and see what we can learn as we start our new year. First of all, I want us to look at Paul's past glory. Look at verses 4 through 6. Paul's past glory. He speaks here of what he once had. He says, I might also have confidence in the flesh if any other man thinks that he has uh, confidence, he might trust in the flesh, I more. See, Paul took on the, the, the religious leaders of his day, the Judaizers, and he took them on on their own ground, their religiousness. They were very religious people. And they mistook their religion for righteousness. There was a time when Paul was more religious than any of them. He was more Jewish than any of them. And his attack on their confidence in the flesh was not merely some academic exercise he was going through, for he lived it himself. He had once been where they're standing. He once sat where they sat. He thought as they thought. He did what they did. But then, on a glorious day, on the road to Damascus, he met Christ. And all it took was one glimpse of the Lord from heaven. And all of his religious trappings, all of his self-righteousness fell by the wayside. And it was stripped away from his soul forever. The moment he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, he realized what he had been doing and where his religious zeal had actually brought him. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 4, he hears the Lord's words, Saul, Saul, which was his name before he was called Paul. Saul, Saul, why persecute thou me? And those words went right to his heart. He discovered that everything in which he had trusted was not only worthless, but it was also wicked. because it made him an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was willing to look at all that he had. And then we see in verses 5 to 6, we see everything that he kind of lifted up. He hailed. Look at verse 5. He was His status was that of a pure Jew. And we know that because it says that he was circumcised the eighth day. When Paul was a baby, too small to even say anything about what went on. A religious rite was administered to him as a little infant. The circumcision was not done by him, but for him. And the rite made him, under the, 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 the rules of the terms of the Abrahamic covenant, an accepted member of the religious community. He was a Jew by religion, is the point. 
He was also a Jew by race because it says there in in verse 5 that he was out of the stock of Israel, out of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. First, he makes a national claim. He says, I'm the stock of, of Israel. He was born into a nation chosen and set apart by God himself. Do you you understand that no nation except Israel has ever had a treaty relationship with God? No other nation. So it was a great privilege for Saul of Tarsus to be born into a Jewish home. You might compare it to today if we were born into a Christian home. We would say, wow, that's 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 a privilege. Some of us weren't born into a Christian home. So God had to work and help us figure all this out. But some of you have born been born actually into a Christian home. You've been raised with Christian principles. What a blessing that is. Well, it was a blessing for Saul of Tarsus to be born into a Jewish home. That's the national claim. He's of the stock of Israel. Then he he makes a tribal claim. He says, I'm the tribe of Benjamin. Well, what does that mean? The tribe of Benjamin, remember, gave Israel its first king. It's kind of ironic. And what was his name? Saul. And you remember, Saul, what did he do? He persecuted David, right? Well, Saul of Tarsus persecuted, you might say, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting little tagline there. But unlike the Old Testament Saul, the New Testament Saul ended up crowning Christ Lord of his life. So he made a national claim to his Jewish heritage by race, a tribal claim, but he also made a parental claim. He says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. See, in the original language, it can be translated a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, it's simply saying that both of his parents were Hebrew. Both of his parents were Jews. That means something in that culture. Some Jews just have one parent who's actually a Jew and that the children are are Jewish. But, boy, if you have both parents that are Jewish, wow. And so his status was that of a, a pure Jew back in his day. He was also a practicing Jew. In verses 5 to 6, we see that. It, it says there, as touching the law of Pharisee. In other words, you, you can't get any more stringent than that. If you're a Pharisee, boy, you're, you're, you have a fundamentalist view of your religion. Today, fundamentalism is, a, is, is kind of a bad word. People say, oh, you're one of those fundamentalists. <laughs> you actually believe that Jesus said what he said. You actually believe that he was born of a virgin. You actually believe that he rose from the dead. Yeah, we do. Well, he was, you might call a fundamentalist Jew. He was also a fanatical Jew because it says they're concerning zeal. Look at what he did. He persecuted the church. Now, he didn't do it, I don't believe, with malice in his heart. Just like the people today who who kill people in the name of their religion. They really believe in what they're doing, and they believe that it's somehow pleasing to their God to fly airplanes into buildings and kill innocent people. As weird as that sounds to us, they actually believe that. That's part of their religion. They're fanatics. 
That's why we call them usually terrorists or fundamentalist, fanatical, Islamic, what? Extremists. Well, Paul had that fanaticism in his religion. He went around and he saw Christians following Christ, and he said, wait, this is going to not go well with my religion, and I'm a member of a religion that doesn't believe in this Messiah, so I'm going to attack the people that do. And this was a guy who actually took pride in killing Christians. Now, today, if somebody did that, we'd say they were evil. They were a horrible person. But back then, and even in certain religious sects today, it's, it's, it's a badge of honor for some people to kill people who are not part of their religion. Islam is a good example. It's okay for them to lie to an infidel, anybody who's not Islamic. It's fine to do that. That's what is so interesting when our government wants to sit down and talk with them at a table. <laughs> well, they're going to lie through their teeth to you, and they're going to be okay with it. They're not going to honor any treaties. They're not going to do any of that. Why? Because the religion says that it's okay to do that. So he was a fanatical Jew, but he was also a fastidious Jew. In other words, it says there, speaking of the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. Notice it uses the word blameless, not sinless. Paul was not sinless. There was no one in Scripture who was sinless other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's so important to understand. Because, see, some people today are trying to work for their salvation. They're thinking if they can just get a little bit better, if they can just get good enough, good enough, good enough, and they keep on piling up good work after good work, thinking somehow that's going to earn credit with God. It doesn't work that way. You have to be sinless to walk into the presence of God. You have to be perfect. You have to be righteous. Well, most of us know that we're not those things. But Paul was a fastidious Jew, and he thought, boy, if I can just do everything according to the law. And that word blameless means just what it says, without blame. In other words, people can't point their finger at you and say, oh, wait a minute. What about this? What about that? Paul, you say you're a Pharisee, but hey, we saw you breaking God's law the other day or whatever. And I'm sure when those things kind of uh, uh, ran through his head, he really thought that he was blameless. He had an all-good consciousness sought to live up to the standard and behavior that God would accept. And he made a sincere effort to keep God's law. He tried to do his very best even though that best wasn't good enough. So that's Paul's past glory. That's, that's what, where, from the roots from which he came. And I think it's important to understand that because you're not going to understand the rest of what we're going to look at if we don't understand a little bit about his background. He once thought himself as chief of the saints, but when he saw the Son of God, he realized that he was what? chief of sinners, just the opposite. See, that's what happens when someone is transformed by God's power and gloriously saved. So many times we scratch our head and people pray a little prayer, they raise a hand, they come down to an altar and and do whatever they want to do, and then they, they live a life that's not honoring Christ. And we shake 
scratch our head and we go, boy, we don't know if they're a Christian or not. You know, they made this commitment, but, you know. The easiest way to see if someone's a Christian or not is have they changed? It's not rocket science. Has God changed their life? Doesn't mean they're going to be perfect, but their desires are going to change. Everything about them is going to change as far as is, is their, their way they want to seek and, and please God and, and desire uh, things that are godly and not sinful. I mean, you're still going to sin as a Christian. But Paul was all those things. And yet it didn't add up. It didn't add up. Sometimes we need to stop and look at our own lives and say, which direction are we going in? Are we trying to work this thing out on our own? Are we trying to logically sit down and figure out this Christian thing that people keep on praying for us to become a Christian? They keep on, you know, reading Bible verses and praying and doing this stuff, and you just don't get it, maybe. That's okay. God understands that. And he wants to help you through that. He wants you to know that he's there. You just cry out to him. Even in your unbelief, cry out to him and say, God, I, I don't have a clue what this stuff's about, but you know what? These people seem pretty excited about it in this church. Maybe I ought to check it out. To not even check it out, beloved, to not even say, hey, what's going on? What's, what's the big deal about this? would be a big mistake. What happens when there's an accident or, or when something happens on your street and say people are out, the neighbors are out in the street and they're looking and, you know, maybe the fire truck, and what do you do? You go outside and you run down, what's going on? You want to know what's going on because something's happening. Well, it doesn't take too, too much to look around in the lives of Christians and see God doing something. You hear people testify how God is changing their life, how God forgave them of their sin, how God restored their marriage or their family or brought a a lost loved one to Christ. Whatever it may be, God is at work. If you want him to work in your life, you just cry out to him. Well, we also want to look at Paul's present gains because in verse 7 to 11 of chapter 3, This is where it begins to kind of get good, get better, I should say. Paul's present gains, what he discounted, we want to look at first. In verse 7, basically, it tells us that he wrote off all his human religion. Just wrote it off. Just said, you know what? It's nothing nothing to me anymore at all. He says in verse 7, the things that were gained to me, that's what he's talking about, These I have counted loss for Christ. See, Paul was looking at his religious balance sheet, and he calculated. He was counting up the gains, and he's counting up what he had in Christ. And and it's almost as if he spread out his little bags of gold on the table and looked at each one and said, is this really worth it? Or should I take Christ? The Judaizers would have been delighted with every one of his little little bags of gold that he had that we just looked at. They would have been, you know, boy, off the hook with all that stuff. Circumcised the eighth day, a stock of, the, of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning a law, Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, blameless. 
See, all those things impressed the religious leaders of Christ in, in Paul's day. But it says that he wrote them all off. He says, all those things were gained to me, but you know what? I counted them as loss. He picked them up and he put them on the scales and then he looked at Christ and he said, you know what? I can have one or the other. Which one's it going to be? And he carefully accumulated gains as a religious man and gains as being in Christ because he couldn't have both. He knew that. See, that's a mistake many of us make. We think that we can have both. We think that we can have the world and have Christ. You can't. The Bible is very clear about that. It says if you, if you love the world, then you, you don't love Christ. There's no way. But on the road to, to Damascus, he made that decision. He didn't hesitate a moment. He picked up everything that was treasure to him, all his religious trappings, and he threw them away, the Bible says, as if they were trash. He used the same irony to describe his gains and losses as a religious man. All he had gained was loss, he says. What he had considered assets at one point turned out to be what? Liabilities. That can happen overnight, as many people have found with this economic downturn and everything. Boy, once people took pride in everything that they had and all this stuff, and, every, and all of a sudden, poor, the economy changes. Whoa, now I got the nice boat, the nice car, the nice, you know, da-da-da-da-da, but I got to pay for it, and now it's becoming what? A liability. Since his one liability consumed his assets, he would have been left spiritually bankrupt if he had not gained Christ. And Christ helped him change the whole scenario, change the whole picture. And so Paul gladly wrote off all these human religious trappings for Christ. See, and when someone comes to Christ in a genuine way, that's what happens. So many times I'm concerned about people who are in a certain religion or in a certain cult and they say they come to Christ, but they still hold on to all the religious trappings. And sometimes their reason is, well, they need to hear Christ and I'm going to stay in this place and and try to share Christ, but you're not going to turn that around. That's something God has to do. I know because I came out of that religious trappings background, and I had a desire after I got saved to go back and to kind of infiltrate that church and try to correct it. But that's not how God does things. So he wrote off his human religion. He also wrote off his human resources. Look at what it says in verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost. Not just the things that were gained to me, the religious things, but all things for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. I mean, when you stop and you think what he gave up, Paul gave up everything for Christ. He gave up his home in Tarsus. He gave up his parents. He gave up all hope of a settled home life for the most part. He had given up his Jewish religion 
He gave up his ambition to climb the ladder to the top so that he could even rule the Sanhedrin one day. Very prestigious thing to do in his religion, his culture. He had given up his health. We don't think of that. But he actually gave up his health to hardships, to floggings, to perils, to even being shipwrecked on occasion. He'd given up the smile and favor of the Jerusalem church to minister to the Gentile world. He had given up his freedom. One day the apostle would even give up his life. Why? Because he says here that he counted all things lost in order to know Christ. In order that he might know Christ, he was willing to put everything else aside. The apostle would allow nothing, absolutely nothing, to come between him and his Savior. That's a good lesson for us. Would it be to God that our heart's desire would would be that nothing come between us and our Savior? It says that he was even prepared to write it off, it says, as dung, as worthless refuse, anything that would interject itself between him and his Savior. He was willing to throw it in the garbage pile. You know, if there's one person in the Bible I'd want to talk to, obviously, besides Jesus, it would be the Apostle Paul. And I'd like to ask him the question, if he ever felt the loss of the things that he gave up, because he gave up so much. And I think here's what he'd say. I think he'd look at us in astonishment and say, loss of trash? What loss? I have seen Christ face to face, bright as the morning, fairer than the day lovely beyond all loveliness. I have looked into his eyes, and that is all I ever see. I have heard his voice, and that is all I ever hear. It rings like the sweetest music in my soul. I love him with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength. I live only for him. In the strength of the heavenly vision, I live on and on, anticipating the day when I shall see that face and hear that voice once again. Lost? All I want is to win Christ, to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. No other call to consecration can compare with Philippians 3.8. talks of stripping off everything that we might see Christ as Paul saw him. I mean, if we do, this world, I guarantee you, will lose all its power to attract us or even to distract us. We would say what Paul had already said to his Philippian friends, for me to what? To live is Christ and to what? Die is gain. I pray you can say that this morning. That's what he discounted. He wrote off his human religion. He wrote off all his human resources. But see, when you become a Christian, when God transforms your life, he not only allows you to put those things aside, but he also gives you new desires. He changes you. And in verses 9 to 11, we see a little bit about what desires Paul has now that he's in Christ. What did he desire? Verses 9 to 11, first of all, this talks of salvational truth. This is what we're talking about here, salvational truth. There's salvational truth that talks about how we're saved. And then there's sanctifying truth that talks about after we're saved, how we live a life that's honoring to Christ. Well, first of all, he talks about salvational truth here. And he he points directly to a position that we have to enjoy in Christ. Look at what it says in verse 9. He says, I counted all this stuff as lost, but look at what I got. He says, and be found in him in Christ. Be found in him. Do you know, beloved, that salvation is largely, it's simply a matter of one's position? That's what you can boil salvation down to. If you have to boil salvation down to one word, I would say 
position. Where are you at with Christ? Because an unsaved man, someone outside of Christ, is without him. He's without God. He's without hope. Ephesians 2.12 says that. The man who is saved, the man who has found Christ, who has yielded his life to Christ, can say, as Paul says, that I want to be found in him. Dr. R.A. Torrey, who's the first president of the Moody Bible Institute, he was talking to a man one time in need about his need for Christ. And he was talking to him specifically about why he needed to be regenerated or born again. And the conversation goes as follows. The man raised an objection. His objection was this. I know some people, he said, who make no pretense of being Christians, but they live upright lives. They're kind, they're generous, they're exemplary. And you know what? I also know people who say that they're Christians, but they live far less than exemplary lives. R.A. Torrey replied, well, let me tell you, it's all a matter of what state you are in. And then he drew two rectangles, and he pointed to one, and he said, this rectangle represents the state of unregeneracy. Let's liken it to the state of Colorado, he went on. In the state of Colorado, one man might live up here at 14,110 feet on Pikes Peak. Another man might live down here at sea level. Another man might be way down here working thousands of feet below the surface in a mine. But you know what? All these men are in the state of Colorado. He went on, he said, so just as the state of unregeneracy, one person might live on the mountains of morality, another might live a very ordinary kind of life, and yet another might live down in the darkness and dirt and vile and wicked life, but they're all in the same state of unregenerate people. We're born into that state. Then he pointed to the next rectangle and he continued. He said, this is the state of regeneracy. You get out of the state of unregeneracy and into the state of regeneracy by being born again. In the state of regeneracy, one person might live on the very high spiritual plane. Another person might live a very average Christian life. Another might live even a backslidden or even a somewhat carnal, worldly life. Some might even fall into serious sin. But you know what? He's still in the state of regeneracy. Indeed, his outward life might compare very unfavorably with the man, with the life of the man living on the mountain of morality in the state of unregeneracy. But one man is in the state of regeneracy and the other is not. The moral man living in the state of unregeneracy is devoid of spiritual life and is lost, no matter how moral he is. And yet the person struggling with sin in the state of regeneracy has spiritual life, even though for a time being it may not even be evident. God's word says that he will be saved in spite of his poor showing as a Christian. See, it all depends on what state you're in. If you're not born again, You can be. You can pass from the state of unregeneracy into the state of regeneracy by coming to Christ, by acknowledging him as your Lord and Savior, repenting of your sins. See, to be found in him, beloved, is salvational truth. To have Christ found in us is sanctifying truth. To be found in him means that when God looks at me, he sees who? He sees Christ. To have Christ found in me means that when other people look at me, they see Christ. To be found in Christ is really, the Word of God says this, an unsaleable position. Once you're in Christ, you're in Christ. That allows me to sleep at night, let me tell you. If if the only thing I had to rely on was my goodness or my trying to be good or whatever, man, I, I would have been lost the day after I was saved. It's God who saves us. It's God who keeps us saved. So we see a position to enjoy. Be found in Him. I ask you this morning, are you found in Christ? Have you come to a point in your life 
where you've looked at everything, all your religious trappings, all your good works, everything, and said, you know what? It's not adding up for me. And there may be some truth to this. I want to let you know you can be found in him. You yield your heart to him. Secondly, it's also a possession to enjoy here in verse 9. We see a possession to enjoy. He says in verse 9, he says, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. See, you have to understand, and this is why I said it's important to give you a little background on Paul. Paul had once worked very hard to live up to a certain standard of behavior that God could accept in his mind and in his religion. And he had taken very much pride in his achievements as a religious man. I mean, can't you imagine the Apostle Paul before his conversion, maybe laying in bed one night, naming the commandments one by one, evaluating his performance? How am I doing in this area? Let's see, thou shalt not have any gods before me. Yeah, I've kept that one. Never turned aside to a false god. I've worshipped Jehovah ever since I was old enough to know his name. I shall not make any graven image. Bow down to them. Well, I've honored that, done that, never been involved in any kind of idolatry. The boy in Tarsus, a pagan city where many idols were often seen around, I learned the folly of worshiping such things. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, Lord thy God in vain. I've never done that. I consider the name of the God to be a holy name, to be revered, not to be spoken of lightly. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Well, I've kept the Sabbath. He's probably going through his mind thinking this. I've not worked on the Sabbath day. I've studied the minutia of the details that the rabbis added to the Sabbath keeping, and, and I approved of them, and I sought to observe them. Honor thy father and mother. I've done that. My parents have always reigned in my affections, and I've sought to please them and obey them. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. I shall not bear false witness. See, in his mind, he's probably thinking, hey, I've done all these from my youth up. Nobody could accuse me of breaking these laws. So far, so good. Thou shalt not covet. Shouldn't have any evil desire. He runs into a little problem here. Because in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, he says this, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. That's the one that caught him. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of lust. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it slew me. The one commandment in his mind. You say, well, didn't he kill Christians? Well, yeah, but in his mind, that was the right thing to do. When he wrote to the Romans, Paul looked back on his pre-conversion days. He showed how his supposed judgment-proof righteousness had been breached in the titanic of his, of his own ability to sail triumphantly to heaven by his own efforts struck the iceberg of that 10th commandment. And there was an enormous gash made in his righteousness, which is of the law. And all the seas of sin came streaming in, and he was sunk. He realized he was without Christ. So Paul discarded all that false righteousness. He put it aside. See, you have to do that if you're going to come to Christ. You can't look at yourself as somebody who's righteous and not in need of a Savior and get saved. That's just It's not going to happen. You have to realize who you are without Christ. We can't generate our own righteousness. We may call it righteousness. We may think we're good people. But all we have to do is take a look at God's law. It's not a matter of what we call good. It's a matter of what God calls good. And God says good isn't good enough. You have to be perfect. You have to be pure. 
You have to be sinless. Nobody can measure up to that except his son who came and died in our place. He discarded all that false righteousness. The last point this morning, he discovered a flawless righteousness. It says there in verse 9, the righteousness that comes to me is by Christ, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. See, the secret to a flawless righteousness, if that's what you're searching for, the secret is Christ. That's the only way you can have a flawless righteousness because the Lord Jesus Christ, by the life that he lived, he produced a genuine righteousness. It says it's the righteousness which is of God. He kept all the commandments. There was no law that could leap out and slay him. He kept the law law of God, not only to the letter, but also to in spirit. From the moment he first drew breath until the moment he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He was perfect in every way. And he laid down that sinless life as an atonement for our sin to cancel the debt that we have accumulated by our own sins, by our own failures, to produce the behavior that God could accept. He paid our debt. We used to sing a song. And the song, when he paid a debt he did not owe, he paid a debt that we couldn't pay. But that wasn't the end, beloved. In the end, he rose from the dead. And the Bible says that he lives forever in the power of an endless life. And by the Holy Spirit, he regenerates us and he comes to live within us. As he once gave his life for us, now he gives his life to us so that we can stand before God, not in the taggered rags of our own righteousness, but in his seamless robe of Christ's righteousness. We need to come to terms with who we really are in this world. And Paul did that. He realized that, you know what? God is a God of second chances. Yeah, he did a lot of bad stuff. But you know what? God gloriously saved him. And it wasn't because he was some big religious fanatic and all that. He, he saved him because he put his love, his desire to save him. You say, well, why does God save some people and not others? I don't have a clue. That's God's will, not mine. God chooses who will be saved. Matter of fact, he says, basically, even before the foundation of the, of the earth. So it's not based on our own righteousness that we're saved. It's not based on our talents. It's not based on our giftings or our personality. God doesn't need us, but he desires us to know him in a personal way. And maybe there's some here this morning who need to cry out to God and need to start off on the right foot this new year, 2010. Beloved, we don't know what this year will hold. I guarantee you some of us here today may not even be here in 2011. You may not even make it halfway through this year before you're whisked away into eternity. You don't know. See, that's that's one thing. Death is one thing you're not going to escape. We all face it sooner or later. So we want to ask this morning, do you want to start off on the right foot with God? Do you want to have a new beginning as Paul did? We're going to continue to study next week, but I pray that if there's anybody here who is yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that maybe 2010 or 2011 will be your year and you'll be willing to step out in faith. That's what it is. It's faith. If you're waiting to have all the I's dotted and T's crossed, forget it. That's not faith. God wants you to trust him. If you cry out to him with a trusting heart, he will hear that prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. And Father, we even thank you for his background in all that he uh, was raised in, in this Jewish religion and, and all the, the trappings of his religion, even though it was looked up to as 
something to be attained to, sought after. We pray, Lord, that you would just show us. Maybe we're stuck in our our religion. Maybe we're stuck with the trappings of this world. Maybe we have yet to throw it all aside and count it as rubbish. Lord, I ask this morning, if there's anyone here, Father, you know the hearts. I pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, you're a God who hears our prayers, and we cry out to you from a humble heart for you to save us. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the prayer God wants to hear from your lips. He'll take care of the rest, but he'll answer that prayer this morning. And for us Christians, I pray that as we look to this new year, that we would not forget our responsibility to share the good news of the gospel with those around us. Lord, there's so many people that are caught up in their their religion and in their own self-righteousness. It's not that we don't have an audience. There's an audience everywhere. So many times where we don't have the courage. We don't have the passion. We don't even have the desire sometimes to share your word with others. Lord, I pray that that would be different in 2011. Lord, that we could come to the end of this next year and look around and see people who have been gloriously saved by your grace and mercy as a result of us going out into a world that is lost and dying and sharing the good news of the gospel that you would do that work in people's hearts, that you would draw men onto yourself. We ask that in Jesus' precious name. All God's people say, amen.